أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وبه نستعين صلى الله عليك يا سيدي يا مولاي يا رسول الله وعلى أهل بيتك المذنومين صلى الله عليك يا سيدي يا مولاي مولاي وابن مولاي يا أبا عبد الله يا رحمة الله الواسعة ويا باب نجاة الأمة يا غريب يا مذنوم يا أطشان كربلا ما خاب من تمسك بكم والأمنا من لجأ إليكم سادتي يا ليتنا يا ليتنا كنا معكم فنفوز والله فوزا عليما قال الله العظيم في محكم كتابه الكريم والقونك الحق ولاستق القائلين أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ألهاكم التكاثر حتى ذرتم المقابر عملنا بالله صدق الله العلي العظيم صلى الله عليه وسلم When the human being desires to be in a state of consistent progression in one's spiritual identity, it requires a lot of effort on behalf of the individual. You can't find and you can't seek your Creator if you don't desire to put forth an effort in terms of doing so. It requires a lot of diligence, a lot of attentiveness, and a lot of care over one's body, but more importantly, over one's soul, in terms of really finding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The end goal of religion is to know God. And the first step toward reaching that end goal, which is to find and to know God, is to know God. Meaning that the entire path that an individual seeker has to take is seeking to find one's creator. In the words of Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen salam, he states, that the first stage of religion is to know him. And the end goal of knowing, religion, of knowing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or seeking in the path of religion is also to know him but at a completely different level than the way that you entered that path of seeking. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that on the journey towards spiritual progression, there are a lot of ups and downs. There are a lot of highs and lows. And it's impossible to think that the religion of Islam and finding God and being a spiritual being, whatever that's supposed to mean, is just in this path of vertical progression. Without you ever falling down, you have to understand that people always fall down. But it's about who gets back up and desires to put forth that extra effort toward finding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not easy, but if someone desires it, and if someone really wants to fulfill their responsibilities and their obligations toward God, then they're going to be diligent and attentive throughout the entirety of the process. But life often comes in the way. And we face unique obstacles on the path toward that progression. But someone who understands that all of those obstacles and all of those hurdles are just a means in reality for us to use as a stepping stone so that we get closer toward our Creator can be successful. But every time if you see a door that is closed in your face and you think that there's no way to walk through that door, and you decide to just turn back around and not continue on that path to seeking, well then, you're never going to get there. Because it's about putting forth an effort. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all He wants to do is see us put forth an effort. This is the famous tradition which states that when you take one step toward God, God will run toward you. And He will become the eyes through which you see and the feet through which you walk. 
and the hand through which you grasp, all you have to start to do is to start on your path toward finding him. And you don't need to do anything in terms of physical practice or ritual in order to demonstrate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Oh Allah, I want to get closer to you. But all you have to do is just have that bit of an intention within your heart. And it all comes down again to what we see via our heart in order to attain that level that we are desiring to attain, which is proximity to him. But when we go ahead and take a look at the ahadith within the school of Ahlul Bayt, and unanimous and numerous traditions which speak to the greatest hurdle that a human being faces on the path toward progression in terms of seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is falling in love or being attached to this world. In a hadith from Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen Ali alayhi salam, he states, رأس كل حب الدنيا That the leader of all sin and of all vice and of committing any error is having too much of an infatuation and love of this world. And I mentioned this a couple of nights ago, that if we are not seeing this world as a stepping stone toward getting to the next, and we only see it as the end goal of our existence, then we're, fail then we're failing to understand the bigger purpose of what life is all about. We have to understand that we do not live solely for this world. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy this world. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't work hard in this world. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't spend money, or doesn't mean that you shouldn't make money, or doesn't mean that you shouldn't eat nice food. But just know that all of this is temporary. And as much as we say it, and as much as we talk about it, it's about knowing it. Knowing with the heart, not knowing with the ears. It's about seeing with the spiritual, not seeing with the physical. It's about having conviction that this life of mine is going to pass and it's going to fade, and I only have 60, 70, 150 years living over here, and then after that, I'm going to transition into an eternal abode, for good or for bad. But there's a life beyond this life. And in the tradition from Rasulullah Muhammad wasallam, he tells us, live for this life like you're going to live forever. But live for the next life, like you're going to die tomorrow. So put forth your best effort to be successful, whatever success means in this world. And then put forth your best effort for the next world, because the world is going to end. This temporal existence is not going to last forever. If I could ask everyone, please recite one salawat and move forward, inshallah. Please move forward. There's, a, there's not a lot of space for for people in the back. And people are going to continue to come in. So if we do it now, then we don't have to do it later on. And going back to this tradition of the commander of the faithful, Imam Ali alayhi salam, he states, Hub al-dunya ra'si kullu that love and infatuation and attachment to this world is the cause of every single sin. And it's about, again, allowing for ourselves to be so consumed with this world to the extent where we completely are negligent of the fact that there is something that lives far beyond it. And we find within a tradition that one day a man, he comes toward Imam Ali alayhi salam, and he says, Oh, Amir al-Mu'mineen, I want to ask you a question. Within the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala several times mentions about how this world is not that great in comparison with the next world. And many verses of the Qur'an, they state, do not become deceived by this world. And in the Arabic language, the word dunya comes from the root word dana, which means low which means something very low, the lowest of the low, dunya dunya. 
So he goes toward Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen and he says, explain to me the reality of this dunya. Explain to me the reality of this world. So he says, tomorrow I want you to come to my home after the morning prayers and I will explain to you the reality of this world. So it is said that he came to him and he knocked the door of Imam Ali alayhi salam and they began to set out on a journey where he was trying to give him an example of what this world is all about. So it is said that they began to approach a farm and that man, he looked toward Imam Ali alayhi salam and he said, Oh, my master Ali, are you trying to explain to me or give, in, or give me the similitude that this world is like a farm in comparison with the rest of the world? So he said, no, just listen to what I have to say and you'll be able to understand what I'm saying. You'll be able to understand the metaphor that I'm going to give you. So they walked closer until they entered into that farm and they saw some cows that were grazing. And Imam Ali said, do you see all of these cows grazing? He said, yes. Are you trying to tell me that cows are what the world is like in comparison with the ocean and the streets and the sun and the moon and the stars? Are you trying to give me that comparison? He says, just wait for me to tell you what I got to tell you. So it is said that they continuously walk until they enter into that farm and they see a dead cow in the midst of all the other cows. And Imam Ali says, do you see that dead cow? To which he says, oh Imam, are you trying to tell me that this world is like a dead cow? He said, just wait for me to tell you what I got to tell you. So they approach that cow that had passed away. And can you imagine like the fragrance of a dead cow after it passes away? He said, look at the cow's mouth. He says, okay. He's looking at the mouth. He says, I want you to open up the, the mouth of this dead cow. He said, no, man. I'm not doing that. He said, I get the point. He said, no, 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 you don't get the point. So it is said that he goes and he opens up the mouth of that dead cow. And in between two of its teeth were some grains or some... Or some chewed up grass or chewed up leaves in between two of the teeth Imam Ali salam says that is the worth of this world to me that is the worth of this world to me meaning something completely and absolutely insignificant he said now go and resume your life knowing the worth of this dream and in another occasion, it is said that Bahlul, Bahlul was his companion of some of the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, who would, in order to give people lessons, he would make a lot of jokes. And he would be very sarcastic. And traditions tell us that he would act crazy, he would act insane during a time where it was forbidden to be the followers, to be the Shia of Muhammad and Ali Muhammad, during the time of Al Harun al Rashid. So it is said that he goes to Harun, who is the Abbasid Caliph at that time, who you know, is the owner of like one-third of the world, under his authority. And he goes to him and he tells him, Oh Harun, let me ask you a question, man. He says, what's your question? You crazy guy who always bothers me. He said, my question is that if you were stranded in the middle of a desert and you had no water to drink, would you give away half of your kingdom for one half cup of water? He said, of course I would. I'm dying. I need water. I still have the other half of my kingdom. So yes, of course I would give it up because I want to live. So he said, now let me ask you another question. He said, what happens if you were unable to excrete that water? You were unable to urinate it out. It was too painful for you. Or God forbid that you couldn't do it and it was going to lead to your death. He said, would you give away the other half of your kingdom so you can urinate it out? He said, of course I am. Of course I would, because my life is more valuable. He said, then know the worth of your kingdom in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's worth a sip of water 
and for lack of a better phrase, and peeing it out. And in other words, this world is not worth that much. But it's about understanding that we have it as a means to progress. In the same way that we lived in the womb of our mothers. We live in this world. And there are just phases on the way to an absolute and eternal abode. And last year, around these latter nights of Muharram, for those of you who attended the Majalis last year, I gave a talk on introducing death via a new perspective in a way that speaks to the unique mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how we have to understand that we have to know death because death is the final objective of where we're all going to go. And to also understand that God took care of me when I was in the womb of my mother. God took care of me on the day that I was born. He has taken care of me until this day. And I've had slips and I've had falls and I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. But God's always been there to pick me back up. And to think that He's not going to be with me after I die is to not know my God. And today I want to sort of continue with that theme that we spoke about last year to reflect a little bit in terms of what is life after death. Because death in and of itself is one completely new dimension of who we are as a human being. But then there's a life that lives beyond that day of death. And many people, they fail to understand that that is something that is essential to who we are as a human being. Meaning that every single one of us are going to experience these realities. And it shouldn't be something that we're so scared about but rather it allows for us to put life back into perspective. Let me give you an example. If I thought about my career trajectory five times a day, thinking about where I want to be in five years, five times a day I spend one minute thinking about it, there's a good chance that I'm going to allow for myself to replay or to foreshadow what's going to happen in my life and how I'm going to get there in five years if I tell myself or talk about it or think about it enough times. And you can actually see yourself there. And then five years later, many times you get to exactly where you need to be if you plan accordingly. If you're in college, for instance, like I know many of you are, and you're studying to get your degree. Your end goal at every single exam, every single time you enter into a classroom, if it is that I want to get that degree in honors at the end of these four years, you are going to be a lot more prepared every single day when you come to class. But on the opposite side, if you're someone who does not think about getting their degree, and you think about just getting by, oh man, I need to go to class, it sucks that I gotta take this exam, I really don't want to be here. There's a good chance, sorry to break it to you, that you're not going to be as successful as the student who's trying to work towards something. If you work towards something and you replay it in your mind enough times, you're going to get there because your focus and your attentiveness and your diligence is to reaching that goal. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't ignore a reality that every single one of us are going to reach because it's not going to allow for us to be prepared when we get toward that moment. So utilize that example. If you want to be successful, think about how you're going to get there in this world and translate it toward the next world. If I want to be successful in getting to paradise, but not only getting to paradise, but being in the proximity of God's Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and his immaculate family, the Ahlul Bayt, salam, then let me start thinking about how that's going to work. And don't always be negative every single time someone talks about death. And thus for my discussion this evening, inshallah, I want to reflect on life after death in three important dimensions. And I want to do so again by just giving you a couple of snapshots without going to any depth in regards to any of these three dimensions that I'm going to be speaking about. The first one is in the importance of contemplating death as spoken about within our traditions. 
Secondly, what is life after death in those immediate moments after life? And thirdly, what are some means and some methods by which we can attain reward in life after death that will take us in proximity toward the Messenger and his family? So firstly and foremostly, what does it mean to contemplate death within Islamic tradition? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states within the whole of Quran, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alhaakumu takathur hatta zurtumul maqabar. That a human being, they want to accumulate a lot of things. We're in a state of always trying to increase the money in our savings account. And that's fine. Because we should prepare and we should live this life like we're going to live forever. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the next verse states, Hatta Zurtumul Maqar. Until you go and you visit the graveyard. And all of a sudden your life changes. The quickest way to allow for ourselves to put things back into perspective whereby we are no longer being uh, infatuated with the dunya, with this world, and with all of its amusement, is to go and visit a graveyard. You could be thinking about everything except for God, but the minute that someone in your family, in your community, your friend passes away, everything in your life changes. And very few people, when they go to a graveyard, they're going to sit there and they're going to make jokes. Because all of a sudden, there's a certain seriousness that overcomes us when we understand that that place is going to be the abode of every single one of us. Which is why our ahadith, they tell us about the importance of visiting graves and visiting them really often. To visit them every Thursday night. To visit them every Friday, for instance other tradition states. And that when you go there, don't just go there and don't just make du'a for those who have lost their lives, but allow for that visitation to be a means that is a bridge that allows for us to know. Or what the ahadith tell us, that visiting the graves should be what is known as an ibra. And the ibra in the Arabic language is often translated as a lesson. But it's not only a lesson. It's also translated as a bridge that takes you from destination A to destination B. From darkness into light. From ignorance into knowledge. Another hadith from Imam al-Sadiq says, that if you want to shatter your desire for this world and your attachment to it, then just remember death. Not five times a day, one time a day, one time a week, one time a month. Remember that this life is going to pass. And again, not in a way that you fall into a depression, but in a way that it takes you from A to B. That it puts you into perspective about how exactly we should live. Can I ask everyone to just move forward one more time? There's a lot of space, guys. There's a, there's a lot of there's like a lot of space right over here. There's like a lot of space in that back over there, and there's gonna be people who are gonna keep on coming in, so we don't have to postpone and delay and ask so many times. If you guys can do it one time, then we won't have to do it, you know, half a dozen times. Allah, Muhammad and Ali. There's a chair over here if anyone wants to sit. It's really comfortable. You know, keep it over here. Someone, someone can come up. Someone can come up and sit, sit over here. There's another chair over here. Does anyone else have a chair next to them? Can you raise your hand? Yeah, so we have two chairs. Great. In this tradition, Imam Sadiq alayhi salatu wasalam, he states that the quickest way to shatter your attachment to this world is to just remember your eventual abode. And to be in that state of contemplation, and to be in that state of reflection, and to be in that state of absolute understanding that things are going to take me to that destination, all of a sudden, again, 
your worldview about things in their entirety are going to change drastically. So if you can't do it after every prayer, just remember death. Then do it once a week. Then do it once a week. Because for most people, you can go through years upon years without ever thinking about death, without ever contemplating death. And that when there's a death in your family, people get overwhelmed. But as we know, eventually that emotion it begins to break away. And you don't necessarily feel that same emotion, even though in that moment when someone amongst your loved ones who have passed away, you think, how am I ever going to get over this tragedy? It's too painful. But eventually, days go, weeks go, months go, years go, and you get over that tragedy. So it's not only, again, about the death of your loved ones, it's about putting yourself in a frame that I'm going to a certain place. And that place doesn't have to be bad. That place has potential for my own growth. I gave this example last year. If we were asked when we were in the womb of our mothers, and someone were to pose the question, do you want to leave this womb of your mom? Or do you want to go to that world where to be surrounded by people? There's going to be like a lot of color, a lot of noise, a lot of light. You have to get sick sometimes. You got to talk to people all the time. You got to pay your own bills. Eventually you have to feed yourself and your mom is not going to feed you anymore. What are we going to say when you're comfortable? Of course not. When you're comfortable being sustained by your mother and you're warm and you're comfortable, you never want to get out. You're going to say, absolutely not. I don't want to go to the world. I'm good here. Thank you. The same way that we've reached a sense of comfort in this world, we don't want to transition to the next because, of it's, a fa- because, because, it's, because it's our failure to know what it's all about. But then when you know, like we mentioned on the second night, about the uniqueness of the bounty and the blessing of paradise, who doesn't want all that food? Who doesn't want to sit on those reclined couches? Who doesn't want to be in the proximity of their loved ones? Who doesn't want to be in a state of absolute enjoyment? So number one, we have to understand about the importance of contemplating death. And to be in the state, again, of reminding ourselves of it, even if it means setting an alarm on our iPhones that says, Remember death once a week, Friday afternoon. (laughs) And then you turn off that phone and you sit on your prayer mat and you look up at the skies or you look out the window, you lie down on your bed and you say, Oh Allah, one day I'm going to get to that destination. Just don't leave me by myself. Take care of me. لا تكلني إلى نفسي We say in one dua. Oh Allah, you never left me anywhere. When I was really sick, you didn't leave me. When I committed a lot of sins, you didn't leave me. When I was in the moment between life and death, when I was leaving the womb of my mother at the time of my birth, a lot of things have to go right for you to be alive. Talk to a doctor, and they'll explain to you about the details of the intricacies of how you come into life and how many things need to go right for life to really happen. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cared for us then. You think He's not going to take care of us in the next transition. And that brings me toward the second dimension of my discussion. And that's in regards toward understanding the different components of life after death. Last year, you could go back via reference online and you could take a look at the first few stages that I spoke to. The first one being al-ihtabar, the moments when someone is about to die. And then after that, what actually consists of death? I want to focus and take you toward the next destination, and that's actually entering into the grave. Or what is known as al-qabr. In the Arabic language, the term qabr is translated as grave, and we often understand the grave to be that rectangle place in the earth that is dug by human beings 
whereby we will eventually live and someone will take dirt and throw it on our eyes and that will be the end of it. But within our narrations, the school of Ahlul Bayt state that the Qabr is something far greater than just that rectangle box. But rather it's a state, a spiritual state, a completely new dimension of existence that we enter into. And so it's not just the physical space because at the end of the day, the body dies, but the soul is that which continues to live on. And within our fiqh, we're taught, for instance, that... We're taught within our law that when someone passes away and you're taking them to bury them in the graveyard, and the grave has already been dug, that you should not take them right away from the place where they were washed and where the kefen, uh, where, the, where they were given the kefen and the whole deal, but rather you gradually take them toward their final and their absolute destination. So you take that, bo- you take that body and slowly you bring it toward the grave. And when you get closer toward the grave, you stop and you put the body down. And then you get back up a second time, and you walk a little bit closer, and then you stop one more time. And then when you get really close to the grave, about three or four arm lengths away, you stop one final time. And then you pick it back up, and then you lower it into its grave. Why do we do that? In Islamic law, scholars, they state, because in the same way that you don't want to put someone in a completely new situation, if they're not comfortable, you need to gradually bring them along to it. My daughter Zainab was sitting over here before. She's three years old and a half. And we're trying to get her to go to school soon. And I don't know if it's just us that are really scared or if that she is just really scared. So every single day we talk to her about school even though she's not going to go until next September. And we tried one time to take her for one day. It didn't go so well. But then we tried to show her the school again. And we tried to show her the colors and the decoration outside and tell her that eventually this is where you're going to go. And you're going to have fun. There's going to be teachers. There's going to be kids. And you're going to get to play. And you're going to get to learn. And then you can color. And then you can draw. And then one day when we were walking by that school, she started crying. And we thought, oh my God, she really doesn't want to go to school. But she said, I want to go to school today. (laughs) The problem was that it was Sunday. (laughs) And then we walked by that same location again a couple of days or, or, or sometime after that. And she cried again and she said, Baba, I want to go to school. We said, sorry that today's Labor Day. And she said, why is the school always closed? You want to be able to prepare someone when things are going to change very drastically. And in reality, like I said, probably that's more of an experiment for us as parents because we don't want to let go. But imagine how much life is going to be different after this world when you're being lowered into that grave. And I said that one day Salman, Salman is the close confidant companion of the Holy Prophet Muhammad and of Amir al-Mu'mineen and it is the Prophet who states himself that Salman has reached the 10th level of faith. There are 10 levels of faith and Salman has reached the 10th. And he was known to be someone who is gifted with the ability to see things differently, to see the realities of this world. <laughs> Where there's an unveiling of the eyes so he's able to see and it said that he went to a graveyard and he called out, Ya Ahlul Qubur, O people of the grave, tell me what the lowering of your bodies into that grave was like. To which one of them called out, O Salman, it was as if I was falling from the heaven until the earth. Meaning what? Meaning that it felt like it took an eternity. What does that mean? I don't know. 
but it's about understanding that if we're not well prepared, things become a lot more difficult. But if you're prepared and you know what you're getting yourself into, the process is just a lot more smooth. And after you enter into the grave, the first thing that will happen, according to our traditions, is a questioning that will take place. A questioning whereby two angels, according to one hadith by the names of Munkar and Nakir, and by another tradition, Mubashiran wa Bashir. And some ahadith, they state that Munkar and Nakir, they come to people who are a lot of sins. And Mubashiran wa Bashir are people who are angels who come to an individual who did a lot of good deeds. They will come to you in your grave. And they will begin to ask you about every single one of your deeds. And someone says, man, how are they going to ask me about every single one of my deeds? That's going to be a really long time if they ask me about every detail. Well, that's the whole point. It's going to be a really long time. And if you have a lot of good deeds, then you're happy to boast about good things that happened to you. Think about it. The nature of the human being, when they do something good, they like to tell people that they do something good. And I'll go back to the point or example that I gave yesterday or a couple of days ago. When someone accomplishes something, they put on Instagram. <laughs> Literally, they put on Instagram. You accomplish anything and you put on Instagram. I'll plug, I'm going to make a quick plug. I just started an Instagram, guys. You should follow me. <laughs> My following is not increasing substantially the way that I was hoping that it would. <laughs> but I promise it's going to be quality, inshallah. <laughs> The first thing that you want to do is you want to put it on social media and share it with the world at Fayaz Jafar. <laughs> and you want to tell everyone about all of the good things that you did. So when those angels, they come to you and they tell you, hey man, you know those prayers that you performed? You know those tears that you shed for Imam and Hussein? That Hajj, that Umrah, that fast, that charity, whatever it is, you want to talk about it. Because you love to talk about where you did the right things. And we're very quick to forget the bad things that we did. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us 86,400 seconds every day. And every single one of those seconds, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by means of his angels, are going to say, how did you utilize that time? How did you utilize that day? How did you utilize that moment? And why didn't you do it properly? Some of the awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they state that, even though I know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the all-merciful, and I know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the all-forgiving, and I know with absolute certainty that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive all of my sins, the one thing that I really don't want Him to do is ask me why I did what I did. Think about it. They said that one day there was this man. He invited a couple of his friends over for dinner. And they were all sitting on the dining table and they were eating appetizers. And the minute that the host, he stepped out of the dining, dining room to go to the kitchen to go and bring the main course of the meal, all of his friends, they started backbiting him. Imagine, you're sitting amongst a group of your friends. One of them gets up to go and use the restroom. One of them gets up to go and get a cup of coffee, whatever it is. The nature of who we are is that when we're a group of people and one person walks away, we're going to talk about him or her all the time. We love to gossip. He gets up and he goes away. And the minute that he gets up, all of the friends are like, can you believe that guy, man? Do you hear what he said? Unbelievable. He's so ridiculous. They start saying all of these things about their friend. Well, they're sitting at his table. They're sitting in his home. They're eating his food. They're eating with his fork and with his knife and with his plate. The minute he walks back into the dining room with the main course, he has a big smile on his face because all of his friends are around him. And he's like, hey guys, what were you guys talking about? And they're like, oh, we're talking about the Knicks, man. So he's like, oh yeah? He's like, by the way, I just installed this brand new security camera right over here. 
and can we just check it out to see like how it's working? And they're like, no man, don't do that. Like, just don't play it. And he plays that video, that audio recorder, and he hears all of the insults that they were saying about him for the two minutes that he was away. Even though he's their host, and even though they're enjoying out of his blessing and out of his bounties. If he's a good friend, and if they're good friends, they will say, we're sorry, we're just being sarcastic. And if he's a good friend, they'll say, don't worry about it. But if you said something really harsh about that guy, about that host, how would you feel every single time you looked at him? You made fun of the way that he looks. You made past the comment that might have been really offensive. You all know that amongst people that you interact with, that sometimes there are individuals who say things that are not appropriate. And they're very apologetic, but every time you look at them, even though they said what they said and they were apologizing about it, you remember that every single time you see them. And it's really hard for you to remove that from your heart, that anger, that rage, the disappointment that you have in them. These awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we should be in the state that even if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives all of my sins, what I'm most scared about is if God tells me, hey Fayyaz, why did you do that? Why do you even think about doing that? How embarrassing is it? In front of Rabbul Alameen. In front of Maliki Yawmuddin. And I'm standing in front of the King of Kings. And just his disappointment when he looks at me, why did you do that? Sometimes your parents, they don't need to get angry with you. All they need to do is look at you. And that look of disappointment is enough. You, you just, you, you can't live anymore because you don't want them to look at you like that. You'd rather they slap you on the face. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if He forgives our sins, He might look at us and He might tell you, why did you do that? Why did you think about doing that? So it's about not even asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive our sins before we get to that state where we're being questioned in the grave but rather whereby we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to not even question us for anything that we've done. That we enter into paradise like we say, bila hisab, without any sort of accounting. Oh Allah, I'm too embarrassed for everything that I've done, for everything that I've said, for everything and anything that I've done that has transgressed your boundaries. I don't even want you to ask me. Just know that I'm too shy. So the first stage after entering into the grave is this phase of questioning. And then after that, there's going to be the phase of accounting. In the state of accounting for one's deeds, it is said that after you've been questioned, you're going to be told to make sure that you write down everything. In that state of questioning, you're not only going to be questioned about your deeds, but also about your beliefs. You're going to be asked who was your Lord and where was your Qibla and what was your book and who was your Prophet and who was your Imam and about things that mattered in terms of your belief system, your ideology, your theology and then you're going to be asked about your actions and then after that you have to take account for every single one of your actions. And those angels are going to wait right there and they're going to say that from the very first day of your life what are things that you did? And if you don't remember, they're going to replay right in front of you, and you're going to write it down. Someone says, what's the purpose of all of this? If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala already knows all of our deeds, why does he ask us to write it down? Two reasons. One reason is that for the disbeliever, for the one who didn't have any faith, and the one who committed a lot of sins, that them writing down their bad deeds is a witness amongst, against their own self. Self-incrimination. You are telling God and admitting to Him, I did this. And then for the one who does good deeds again, because again, you just want to tell everybody. And you feel proud that I prayed this prayer, and I attended this program, and I gave this much money in charity as a sense whereby you can solidify your presence amongst the righteous, amongst Muhammad and Wa'ali Muhammad, hopefully in that dimension. 
And then soon after that, reward and punishment will begin. For the believer, paradise, for, excuse me, for the believer, the life in the grave known as the barzakh is a prelude to paradise. And for those who are not believers, it's a means to cleanse our sins, but by receiving punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As much as we talk about God's mercy, you can't completely divorce the fact of God's wrath. But we are people who are believers, so we need to get that understanding of what the joy of paradise is like. And we spoke about that on the previous night. And that brings me toward the third phase of my discussion, and the third dimension. And that is in terms of what we can do, or what we need to do, in terms of being a people who are absolutely receiving that reward and doing and allowing for certain means whereby we're able to repel God's wrath in that world, in that dimension known as the Barzakh, life after death. Our traditions, they explain to us that the number one reason why someone would receive punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the grave is because of bad etiquette. And I know many of you, maybe most of you in this room, pretty well. And I'm not someone who usually speaks to the negatives and the punishment, and I'm not going to get into those details because I just don't believe that that's the means to getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so that's not what I'm trying to do, so don't take me the wrong way. But rather, again, I want us to understand that that is our eternal abode. And if, again, we divorce that reality from our existence, then we're forgetting that one-third of the Qur'an speaks toward the afterlife. And that a lot of those verses, they explain in the same way that they speak to reward, they also speak to punishment. But our traditions, they tell us that the number one cause of receiving eternal punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to having bad akhlaq and in specific with one's family and I spoke yesterday about the and I'll say it again since there's a lot more people here today about the absolutely embarrassing disease that we have within our community of domestic abuse that happens every single day within our communities whereby physically you find Individuals who strike their spouses. Amongst the biggest causes of receiving absolute and eternal punishment is this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala condemns the treatment of our family in this way. And in the hadith from Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen alayhi salatu wasalam, he states, Al-Mu'min ya'kul bi shahwata ahla وَالْمُنَافِقْ يَأْكُلْ أَحْلُهُ بِشَخْوَتَهِ That the believer is the one who eats in accordance with the desires of his family. <laughs> Meaning what? That when you go home, your family wants to go out to this place for a restaurant, you say, okay, whatever you guys want, that's what I want. That your family wants to go on vacation to this location, you say, whatever you want, I'm happy with it. المؤمن يأكل بشهوة أهله والمنافق يأكل أهله بشهوته. And the words of the Imam are really beautiful. He states, and the munafiq, the hypocrite, is the one who eats his family by means of his own desires. Meaning when he comes home, he rules his house with an iron fist. He acts like Fir'aun in his own home. He acts like Yazid in his own home amongst members of his family. And that extends to people in the workplace who rule like that who talk to individuals down all the time. Who gives you the right to demonstrate arrogance over anyone? To show your pride and to think that you're better than someone else, anyone? It doesn't even need to be by words, it can just be the way that you look at people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what's within our hearts, man. And if you find yourself looking down upon people, and if you see religion as being the means that you seemingly are increasing in your understanding of God and religion, and that's causing you to judge other people, you don't know the first thing about religion, my friend. Religion is supposed to see you as less than other people. 
And you're supposed to always be in a state of humbling yourself and think and really believe that everyone's deeds are better than your deeds. Not to see other people and say, look at the way that he prays, or this lady doesn't know how to pray, or this guy is eating this food. Take a step back and understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to humble ourselves to him. And these diseases of arrogance and of pride and of prejudice of maltreatment toward our families and our spouses and our children, they break the back of the Messenger So the biggest cause why someone receives punishment, someone doesn't know how to act properly. And the best means and mechanisms to attain paradise is to leave behind the legacy. And in reality, there are a lot of points in regards to how we can make sure that life in the grave is a life of peace. But to leave behind the legacy is amongst the most important aspects of it all. The traditions of Ahlul Bayt, they speak toward three means by which we can leave behind this legacy. Number one is by giving what is known as Sadaqat al-Jariyah, to leaving behind charity, a charity which keeps on giving. If you donate to our center, for instance, and, sent, and that donation allows for the perpetuity of these programs, as long as people are remembering God in a space like this, getting closer to Him, attaining knowledge, reading Qur'an, reading the Masaib of Imam Hussein alayhi salatu wasalam, way after we die, we're going to be a people who reap that reward. People who help sponsor the publication of a book, for instance. People who donate a book or write a book. All of these means, leaving behind some means of charity, which is going to build a mosque, build an orphanage, build a school, so on and so forth. Anyone who takes benefit from those aspects will receive reward until the very end. Secondly, people who leave behind knowledge, according to our traditions. Someone who writes that book, someone who takes one hadith and puts it on their social media. You put it on Twitter, you put one hadith of Imam Hussein Hussain, one hadith of Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen, of the Prophet, of Sayyidah Fatima alayhi salam and you share it with other people. It doesn't have to be about theology. It could be about morals. It could be about ethics. And someone else is inspired by those words. You've given them a piece of knowledge, a piece of wisdom that might have transformed their lives. Someone who gives a lecture. Someone who offers any sort of knowledge if you're a teacher. A hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salatu wasalam, he states, Man alamani harfan the one who teaches me a letter is my master. In another hadith he states that someone who teaches me one letter has enslaved me to know the benefit of giving knowledge. And the third that is mentioned within our traditions is by leaving behind the legacy by means of a progeny. Children who pray for their family, for their parents, or individuals who carry on the legacy of their parents in ways that transcend just materialistic things, but carry on their legacy in a spiritual frame. And I say that in order to prelude into our conclusion, whereby the man that we are here to remember and recollect his tragedy today is a man who carried on the legacy of his father. And everything that he did on that day, the reward goes back to his father Ali. For he was the pride of his father, and he was the promise of his father, and he was the hope for every single one of us in this room until he fell down from his horse and the children of Hussein died thirsty. Tonight is a night of incredible grief. 
of incredible emotion that I swear that if I can't get through my recollection of the eulogy, then please forgive me because this man, he's so near and dear to our hearts that his name, it gives us goosebumps. That uttering his name allows for our hairs to raise for those of you who know the story. And no matter how many times you say it, it always breaks your heart. Because he was the hope and he was the shining light and he was the pride of that barren desert. But he wasn't able to accomplish what he was set up to accomplish. And that was to bring water for the thirsty children of Hussein ibn Ali. The poet, he says that on the day of Ashura, everything calls out Ya Hussein. The skies call out Ya Hussein. The sands call out Ya Hussein. The waters call out Ya Hussein. The trees call out Ya Hussein. Humanity on earth calls out Ya Hussein, and the angels in the heavens call out Ya Hussein. But Hussein calls out Ya Abu Al-Fat. Al-Abbas ibn Ali is that man who, not by any coincidence, has his own separate mausoleum in the city of Kabbalah. And when you go toward Karbara, for those of you who have been, many individuals, they desire to go and perform the ziyarah of Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas before they visit Imam al-Husayn because they see him as the door to getting to al-Husayn. And what a door. Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas. al-Abbas. And traditionally, we recollect his tragedy on this night, the night of the 8th of Muharram. Because it was only one day earlier which the water of the Euphrates was stopped from reaching the thirsty children of Hussein ibn Ali And from this day until the day of Ashura, those children were crying for thirst. My dear friends, if you've ever seen a child, and this child has not had milk for a really long time, for instance, they've slept for 8, 10, 12 hours. Or even longer than that, they've woken up and they, ha- and they need a little bit of milk to sustain themselves. What happens to that child? It allows for itself to wail and to grieve and to cry to such an extent that they can no longer cry anymore and they can no longer bear what it is to not drink that milk or to not be sustained by that water. On the day of Ashura, the children no longer could cry because they didn't have any more energy. And Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas salam, he comes toward his master. And he calls out, Sayyidi, Halli min Ruqsah. Oh my master, do you give me permission? Imam al-Husayn salam, he goes to his brother and he takes his hand and he puts it on his right shoulder. And he says, Ya Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas, you are the flag bearer. Absolutely not. I can never let you go. Because, oh Abbas, you are the flag bearer and the pinnacle, the climax of our army. Do you know what he said to Imam al-Husayn? He looked toward the right and he looked toward the left. And he said, oh Abba Abdullah, what army? Everyone else has died. So he looks back to his brother and he says, Oh, Abu al-Fadl, why don't you go and why don't you bring back some water for my children? Because Sakina came to me a little while ago and she said, Oh, Baba, I'm really thirsty and I need some water. So Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas, alayhi salam, he began to prepare for that moment of 
and he went into the tent and he put on his armor and he took his sword and he took his spear and he took a vessel of water and he tied it around his neck and he went into the tent of all of the children and all of the women and he began to call out to them, O Zainab, O Um Kulthum, O Rabab, O Sukaina, let me tell you that I'm going to go, go out to the Euphrates and I'm going to bring you water. You know what happened at that moment? Every single one of the women, they stood up. And Zainab and all of the other women, they began to embrace their hope on that day. They began to embrace their light on that day. And as Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas, he exited the tent and he got on top of his horse and he began to ride all of the women. They began to raise their hands to Allah and said, Oh Allah, please bring back, please bring back our uncle Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas and bring him back with some water. It is said that as he began to ride toward the Euphrates, he went to go and see Imam al-Hussein And Imam al-Hussein says, oh my brother, come down from your horse. What are you holding? He said, I'm holding my sword and I'm holding my spear and I'm going to go back and I'm going to take go to the Euphrates and I'm going to bring children the, that water that they're asking me for. Imam al-Hussein he says, oh my brother, leave back your sword because you're not going to fight. If you take your sword, they're going to come and they're going to surround you and they're going to try to kill you. Just take the spear for protection, take the vessel of water, take the flag and go and bring water for these children. At this moment, it is said that Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas alayhi salam, he has the flag in his right hand and he has the spear in his left hand and he's taken the vessel of water and placed it around his neck and he begins to ride toward the Euphrates. And it is said that he begins to ride to the right wing of the army of Umar ibn Sa'ad, which consisted of 4,000 archers. And when he began to ride, he put on his helmet, and he began to recite lines of poetry saying, I am Abbas, the son of Ali. And at that moment when they heard that it was Abbas that was approaching, it is said that all of those 4,000 archers, they began to separate like the water separated from Moses until Al-Abbas reached the water Euphrates. He alights down from his horse, he picks up some water, and he begins to bring it to his mouth. He was so thirsty, three days without any drink. And since the time of Fajr until this time of Bahar, the only thing that he was doing was picking up dead bodies and bringing them behind the tent. Abu al-Fadl Abbas was hungry on that day, and he was thirsty on that day. And when he picks up that water, he looks at it, and he sees his reflection, and he begins to call out, Ya nafs min ba'dil Hussein Huni, O self, how can I drink this? water when Hussein and his children are thirsty. He took that water and he splashed it back on the water. He filled up the vessel and he began to ride back toward the children. It is said that Zainab she was standing on the hill and she was holding the hand of Sakina and she begins to see she begins to say to her aunt oh my aunt look at the flag it's coming back toward us my uncle is bringing water for all of us. She begins to get excited she goes to all of her cousins she goes to her sisters and she tells them that I told you my uncle is going to bring back that water when all of a sudden a man came from a palm tree and he strikes the right hand of Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas he calls Wallahi in yamini that I swear that if you strike my right hand, I will continue to defend the religion of Allah. At that moment, the flag began to fall. He dropped the spear, he grabbed it with the left hand. He tried to protect the water. When all of a sudden, another man came and he severed the left hand of Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas. At this moment, the flag fell down and Sakina says, Oh my aunt Zainab, what happened to my uncle Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas? At this moment, it is said that Umar ibn Sa'ad, he sees, the, he sees Abu al-Fadr al-Abbas riding toward the tent of Hussein, but he didn't have any hands, but he still had that water, and he was trying to bring back that water for the children. 
So Amar ibn Sa'd calls out the 4,000 archers and he said, Oh archers, take your arrows and strike them toward Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas, the son of Ali. At this moment it is said that Hurmala ibn Kahil, he took an arrow which pierced the right eye of Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas. It is said that he tried to take out that arrow, but how did he do so when he didn't have any hands? So it is said that he bends over in order to put the arrow through his knees and try to pull it out. When he bends over the helmet, it falls, and a man came and took an iron dagger, and he struck it on the head of Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas. And it is said that at that moment he fell down from the horse. When someone falls down, they usually have their hands to protect them. But Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas didn't have any hands, so he fell flat on his face, and the arrow went from the eye to the back of his head. <laughs> At this moment, he calls out, Ya Abdullah. Oh, my brother, please come and help me. I don't have any hands and I cannot see. Imam Hussein alayhi salam he gets on top of the horse and he begins to rush toward Imam Hussein alayhi he begins to rush toward Abul Fadl al-Abbas and when they saw Imam Hussein coming with that rage and with that anger everyone they scattered Imam Hussein alayhi salam he comes down and he places the head of Abul Fadl al-Abbas on his lap and he begins to rub that blood from his eye but that arrow still appears and he says, Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas, he says these lines, my dear friends, which break every single one of our hearts. He says, oh my brother Abu Abdullah, I have one will, I have one wasiyah for you, that before I die, just do one thing for me. He says, oh my brother, whatever it is, you tell me and I will do it. He says, don't take my body back to the dead. Don't take my body back to the tent because I'm afraid that the children will be disappointed in me because I didn't bring any water. <laughs> Imam al Hussein alayhi salam. He picks up the flag. There's no water. There's no brother. There's no flag bearer. He takes the flag, which in itself has been ruined, and he begins to ride back toward the tent of the women and the children. And Imam al-Hussein now is all alone. It is said that when he comes, all of the children, they run and they hug their father. And they say, where is our Uncle Abbas? And where is the water that he promised us? It is said that Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam, he goes to the tent and he pulls out the pillar and the tent falls. And he said, that's what happened to my brother Abbas. And that's what happened to our army on this day. Ya <laughs> Yo say, 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 yo say